Well, we're in our series, All the Family Feels, and if you haven't caught on yet, or if this is your first time here, let me catch you up. We're using that phrase, going orange, so that's why you see the orange wristbands, the orange couch, the orange rug, all this orange stuff. Here's what that really means, and here's how we're trying to navigate our families through this entire series. So if we were to put up the, the color yellow, yellow represents our faith. Right? That's the light of the world. That's Jesus, that's church, anything that revolves around our faith. And typically what we try to do is we try to separate and categorize our lives. So we have the faith part of our life, usually Sunday morning, and then we have our family life in the evenings, we have school, we have work, we have sports, we have all these other things that we try to just categorize and keep them all in their boxes and keep them separated. So if yellow is church, faith, Jesus, our Uh, the light of the world that represents our relationship with Jesus, then red represents the love, the heart that is found in the home. And I say it every week and I'll keep saying it, no one can love your family better on this planet than you. So the love that comes out of us into those that we love, and when we say family, I'm talking about the people closest to you, people that you love and that they love you back. And again, we try to separate our yellow parts of our life from our red parts of our life and all these other parts of our life. And what we're suggesting as we go through biblical principles, is what does it look like to just throw them all together? Instead of it being, well, Sunday this and church this and work this and kids that, it's, man, it's just all one big part of our life. So you take yellow, you take red, you throw them together, and you guessed it, you get orange. So when we say we're going orange and we're challenging you and your family to go orange, it's not to have all of your life compartmentalized. It's to say, man, we're we're all in this together. Our whole family, we're going to bring Jesus home with us and we're going to take our family to church and to work and sports and everywhere else. Doesn't mean you have to be here every single Sunday. Doesn't mean you have to be here every day of the week. I'm not even here every day of the week. But it's how are we including Jesus in our families and making sure our families are part of our relationship with Jesus. So that's that whole idea of orange. So the orange couch and all that stuff is to help you and your family create a memorable moment that says things changed on this day. We started living our faith and our family together on this day. And each week, we're kind of learning what that looks like to go orange in our family. And I said the very first time we kicked this series off, if you were here, I said, it's going to take some work. And you even promised that you were ready to work. This last week was a lot of work. I'm I'm hesitant to ask how your sarcasm sarcasm challenge went this last week. I'm I'm not even going to ask. Some of you are like, I missed last week. I'm glad I missed last week. Yes, last week was the good one to miss, but now you can make it up. But I will tell you, as hard as that probably was for many of you, me included, I think what we're gonna look at this morning is probably the most difficult. Are you ready? No, this is not my Bible. This is just a good old dictionary. So what we are gonna be talking about this morning, what we're gonna look through in God's words, but first I've gotta give you a good definition Let's find it in here. Here we go. See if you can just guess what we are going to be looking at regarding our families this morning. Here's a couple definitions. A situation or succession of events in real life having an emotional and potentially exaggerated effect on the people around them. A person who reacts theatrically to minor difficulties regularly tries to be the center of attention and treats other people's problems as less important than his or her own. Drama. AKA drama queen for that last definition. Drama, it's everywhere, isn't it? There's drama, there's the potential of drama always and everywhere. And what we see happen, the drama in our families it escalates quickly. 
Again, there's always a potential for drama, but based on what's said or what's, the way that we're acting, the attitudes that we have, the way that we go about it, we talked about that with words last week, not just what we say, but how we say it, it has the potential to blow something way out of proportion, to exaggerate it beyond belief. So we know that there's potential for drama in our families. Some of you might say drama follows my family. Some of you would say, well, it's just few and far between, but there's always, no matter what, there's always the potential for drama in all of our families. So let me read this, and then I'm gonna give you a question to ask yourself continually this morning. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, so if you can, if at all possible, as far as it depends on you, look at what he says. Live at, what's this word? We're gonna talk about it a lot this morning. Peace. Live at peace with everyone. That includes your family, by the way. Everyone includes your family. Not everyone, but your family. If at all possible, as far as it depends on you, and yes, there's a lot of things that are out of your control. You cannot control how people respond and what they say and how they act often. He's saying, but as much as it's on you, if at all possible, as much as it depends on you, live at, what was it again one more time? Live at peace with everyone. People around you, the people closest to you, your family. Said so there's always the potential for drama. It's like there's a little flame that's constantly lit. And what we do, what we say, how we act has an interesting effect. You have a choice with how you interact with your family. And based on what you say, based on what you do, Based on how you say certain things is gonna do one of two things to that flame. You walk home from work, your spouse says something, you have a choice on how you respond. On your way to church this morning, getting the kids buckled up, your kid says something, you have a choice in how you will respond. You walk into the office and your boss sends an email. First thing you read when you walk in, the email you respond back with. You have a choice on how you respond. See, drama is nothing more than us throwing gas on the flame. It's nothing more than us just exaggerating, having emotional outbursts. It has nothing to do with true, right, wrong. It's we just blow up. And what we're going to see is as much as we possibly can, if it all depends on us, can we put out the fire instead of adding to it? So here's the question. Here's the questions out of basically rewording what Paul said in Romans. Am I, make this about you, not about them, make it about you. So say, I, am I doing all that I possibly can to pursue peace in my family? Am I doing everything I possibly can? Am I doing everything I possibly can that's within my control to pursue peace? Not, not necessarily have peace, we're gonna talk about that in a little bit, but at least pursue peace. I'm trying everything. The way that I say things, what I do, how I interact, the attitudes that I have, am I doing everything I possibly can to pursue peace in my family? Now, we would probably say yes in some areas and no in some areas. So what we're going to look at is a story that shows this interaction of a family dynamic and even some outside folks coming into this dynamic where it is going to just spiral out of control. And you're gonna see the drama get exaggerated and exaggerated and exaggerated until someone finally steps in and has to do something. To pursue peace, something must be done. So we're gonna look at those through a story this morning, how we can diffuse drama. Instead of fueling drama, how do we pursue 
piece. So if you have your Bibles, head over to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25, let me give you a little context into what's happening here. You have King David, David, David and Goliath, David. Even though he is anointed king, he's not sitting on the throne yet as king. The man sitting on the throne as current king is King Saul. Not such a great king. God's in fact said, hey, you're not gonna be king anymore. David is. As you can imagine, that's a whole nother story of drama. Saul doesn't like that, so he starts chasing after David. So David is where we pick it up here. The season of life that David is in, he is literally running for his life. So it's David and a few hundred men that are loyal to him, running around the countryside, hiding from King Saul, hiding and running for their lives. And they're living off of other people's generosity. They would come up to a farm. Hey, can we have some food? They would come up to a shepherd. Hey, can we borrow some food? Well, borrow, we're not going to give it back, I guess. So can we just have it? Can we? They're living off of the generosity of other people. And you're going to see a dynamic that's, again, going to just blow out of proportion. But we want to pay attention to how to diffuse it. How do we not pour more gas on the open flame? Here's where we're going to pick it up. This will set the tone for the scene. Chapter 25, verse 2. A certain man in Maon had a property there at Carmel and was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats, three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. Two important names. We're going to hear a bunch from both of them. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. So, you have, uh, first of all, that'd be a whole marriage to just dissect right there, wouldn't it? But you got Abigail and her husband, Nabal, and he is just mean. I picture this grumpy old man is what I picture uh, as this guy. And here you've got Abigail, sweet and loving, wonderful and beautiful. And something's about to happen. Like I said, David's running around just living off of the generosity of other people. Well, they come to this area. They come to his property. So what happens is David sends some of his men to Nabal and says, hey, here's who we are. We're David. We're on behalf of David, future king of Israel. Just maybe a good thing for you to know that. Could we have something to eat? You know, we're not here to attack you. We're not your enemies. We're friends. Could we have some food? Now, Nabal has a decision to make. How will he respond to David's men? He could say, well, sure, I don't mind at all. Come on in, help yourself. Or he could choose a very different response, which is what he chose to do. He looks at David's men and says, well, I don't know you are who you say you are. This is my food. These are my sheep. This is my property that I've worked hard for. I will give you nothing. I will have nothing to do with you. And I picture him sitting on his front porch with his shotgun. So get off my property. That's what I picture. He just blows up on these guys. Wants to have nothing to do with them. How do I know that David's really this future king of Israel? Anybody could say that. He could be a thief or a robber for all I know. Super mean, which again goes to exactly how he's described here. So David's men go back and they begin to tell David all that happened. Here's what happens next. Verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, look at this, they reported every word. If you're one of David's men and you just got an earful from Nabal, you think you're going to skip anything? Oh, no. You're already heated up. And so here you're going back to David and you tell him every single word. Now, don't cheat. Don't look ahead. Now, David has a decision to make, doesn't he? Nabal gives him an earful. And so David could say, you know what, guys? It's not worth it. Let's just move on to the next one. There's plenty more. Or he could respond very differently, which... 
If you're getting the tone, it's exactly what he does. It goes way out of control. David goes from a zero to a 10. Once they came back and they reported every word, verse 13, David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed back with supplies. In other words, it's go time. It's World War III. You said what to me? Oh, let's see how big you are once my 400 men and swords roll up in your place. That's what's happening. And it's blowing out of proportion over some food. Isn't that what happens? We don't even know what we're fighting about after we do this for so long. Think back to your last extended family dinner. A lot of this thrown around in there. Christmas, Thanksgiving, tends to be around holidays when we love each other the most, that we throw most of this on there. Somebody says one thing, somebody says something else. Oh yeah, well then they say something else. And it just keeps going and going and going and it literally blows massively out of proportion. Remember the question? Am I doing everything I possibly can to pursue peace? So far, we've seen none of that. It's a great example so far, isn't it? We've seen no example of pursuing peace. It's been nothing but feeding and fueling the flame of drama. So of course, news of what's happening is, is spread throughout Nabal's household. So one of the servants goes to Abigail, goes to his wife. She heard about what, it, what Nabal had said to David's men. She heard the rumors of what David's men are on their way to come and do. There's 400 men with swords. You think how, you, you see how that's gonna end up? So this servant comes to the wife, smart. There's so much wisdom in this that she goes to his wife and here's what the servant says to Abigail, verse 17. Now think it over. She had just explained to Abigail everything that had happened. Verse 17, now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. A couple things to point out here. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. You pour enough of this, if you live your life pouring this on flame after flame after flame, rationality goes out the window, doesn't it? We talked about it last week, that James 1.19, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. You cannot do that the more you're just pouring gas on things. The more drama you fuel, the more difficult it becomes to hold on to reality. He cannot be talked out of this. He cannot be rationalized with. He cannot be reasoned with. She also comes to him and says, disaster's hanging over our master and his whole household. In other words, this doesn't just impact him. Sure, he's an idiot, maybe he deserves this, but not the rest of us. You see that with drama though, don't you? It doesn't just impact you and the other person. It spills over into your entire family and everybody around you. It is a wave of destruction that does not stop. And the servant recognizes that. So again, she comes to the wife, comes to Abigail and says, think about it. Please think this over. And remember what she asked? Can you do anything? Think about it. Is there anything that you can do? Is there anything that you can do to pursue peace on our behalf instead of fueling the drama? Again, we all have that choice. Abigail is now faced with that choice. Does she fuel the drama? Does she pursue peace or do nothing, which in reality fuels the drama? So she has a choice. And it was brought to her attention 
What is she going to do? Now, from this moment on, this is where we get super practical, helpful, and applicable. So there's gonna be four things that Abigail does and says that is gonna help us diffuse drama in our families. So there's the scene, there's the situation. How do we pursue peace instead of fueling drama? That's what Abigail is gonna walk us through. So if you're taking notes, there's gonna be four things that we're gonna watch her do that's gonna help us in our own families. Watch how she tries to diffuse this situation. We can use the exact same biblical principle she uses in our own family. So here's what she does. After the servant brings to her attention everything's going on, said, think it over, see what you can do. Here's what she decided to do. Verse 18, Abigail acted quickly. That's a big deal. Not a, well, we'll think about it. Let me, let me pray about it. I'll get back to you in a week or two. No, she acted quickly. She put some thought into it but she acted quickly. She acted quickly and she took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seeds of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on her donkey. Here's what you need to take away from that. She's doing now what should have happened in the first place. Did you catch that? She's doing now, later, what should have happened in the very first place. Place. So she loads all of this stuff up. We're gonna skip down because it gives you a little bit more details than you need. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and, donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, talking to David, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Like I said, now she is doing what should have happened in the first place. Here's the first thing that she does. And if you wanna write this one down, here's the phrase. I'll own it, I'll own it. Notice it's not her problem, she didn't cause it, she's not the root of the issue, she's not the problem, but she owns it. She says, I'll take care of this. And she loads up all the food and then she takes it to David herself. And when she gets there, she bows down and says, would you hear me out? She calls him Lord, a master. She says, would you listen to your servant? Would you hear me out? She owns it. So often, we in the midst of drama are so busy pointing fingers and trying to find fault and place blame that nothing ever changes because there's never anyone to just own it. Placing blame and finding fault, taking ownership. And Abigail takes ownership. Again, not her fault not necessarily even her problem to fix. Go back to what the servant said. Think about it. Is there anything that you can do? So she says, I'll take care of it. I'll own it. Instead of spending all your wasted time and effort and energy trying to find fault, just say, I'll own it. So oftentimes what prevents us from owning it is we look at what should have been done. We say, well, that's why this is an issue. That should have never happened or it should have been this. There's nothing I can do about it now. It's not too late. Again, Abigail loads up all this food, which should have been done in the first place. And she says, you know what? Better late than never. I'll take it from here. So she loads everything up. She rides it out to David and says, I'll own it. Pay attention to the second thing that she does. After she bowed down, she started talking to him. Says this here. And this is, this is something that's, that wives especially, you, you are good at doing this part. No, no offense. Verse 25, pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. In other words, don't pay attention to my husband. He's an idiot. 
He knows not what he says nor does. Please pay no attention, to, my Lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. Now, what she's doing is super intelligent and smart. She is wise. She's talking with David. She's brought all this stuff saying, hey, I'll own it. Here's what we're gonna do. Would you just hear me out? And then she looks at David and says, you are absolutely right in how you're thinking and feeling. He is an idiot. He shouldn't have said that. In fact, his name means fool. And this is not the first time he's done this. He probably has what's coming to him. She identifies with what he is feeling. He, she actually takes David's side a little bit and sees from his perspective. But then that last part, she switches it and says, but David, my Lord, I never saw your men. In other words, what Nabal said to your men, I never had a chance to give my side. You're getting one side of the story. You're getting one man's perspective, David. If I had talked with your men, I would have said something very different. You see what she's doing there? She's recognizing his perspective, David's perspective, and validates it. You should be upset. I understand why you're feeling so mad. I get it. It's deserved. But then she switches and says, but could you see from my perspective for a second, David? I never had a chance to talk with him. You're getting one perspective. Could you look at mine for a second? Perspective is an interesting thing, especially when we're talking in the context of drama. When you dig your heels in, and it's only your perspective, drama will continue to expand. When you take the moment and say, let me see from your perspective, would you take a moment and see from my perspective? You don't have to agree on the perspectives, you're just making the move to see from their side. Take what's happening right now. This is a great example of perspective and how we might switch it. Your perspective of a Sunday morning at church is vastly different than my perspective of church on a Sunday morning. You walk in, you get your kids all together and everything like that, and you walk in, and then you just sit. Oh, it's time to worship. Oh, Brian's up again. That was worth writing down. What else you got? Keep going. Right, very different, that's your perspective. My perspective is I get to be up here and I get to preach the best message of my life out of God's word and I'm trying to change lives by introducing you to Jesus and just doing everything I possibly can and I see. Right, it's a vastly different perspective. So if I were to change perspectives with you, if I were to actually just come right on over here for a second, It's much better down here. I'm going to start preaching while I sit. Because you sit the entire time and you just watch and, and you see how different that perspective is going to be? If I were to pull you up on stage and, and have you stand here, and again, it's not a right or wrong, it's different seats. It's different places. And if you want to change your perspective, check this, it requires movement. You cannot change perspective by just standing there. So what Abigail does is she moves to David's side. I see your perspective. Yes, he's a fool. He has what's coming to him. And then she moves to the other side. Now, will you come with me and see my perspective, David? Because I haven't had a chance to speak my side. In order to change perspectives, to see from their point of view, it requires you to move. It doesn't require you to agree. It requires you to make 
movement. So, second part, I see your point. How do you diffuse drama? I'll own it. Second part, I see your point. You're identifying with their perspective. I'll own it, and I see your point. Here comes the third one. So she talks through them a little bit more. Again, see from my perspective. And then she says this in verse 27. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord, that's all the stuff that she brought, the things that should have happened in the first place. Let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Verse 28, please forgive your servant's presumption. Another translation would say, if I've offended you in any way, please forgive me. So she brings all of these gifts things that should have happened in the first place. And then she says, if I've done anything to offend you, David, my Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Everybody hold out their hand, five fingers. Hold them up, hold them up. It's a requirement. There you go. Don't be, the only, don't be too cool for school. There you go. All right. Five words I want you to repeat after me. I'm sorry. You choked a little on that one. One more time. I'm sorry. Please forgive me, yes, five words that diffuse drama. Now notice, when Abigail said those words, mostly those words, it was first started with actions. She brought all this stuff first and then said, man, if I've offended you at all, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But see, actions speak louder than words. We've heard it before, but it's very true. So she brings all of this stuff. David, this should have happened in the first place. I'm sorry, I'll own it. I see your point. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Now just for me, this is how I think through this, five words that, re that will begin to diminish that drama in your family, I think of it as five words five times a week. If I'm not saying those five words at least five times a week, there's something that I haven't apologized for that I need to apologize for. Now Becky, my wife's not in this service, she'll correct me next one, she'll probably say no, it's really five times a day, not five times a week. So you figure out what that is, but that's a good place to start. If you can't remember the last time you said, I'm sorry, please forgive me, you've got some I'm sorry, please forgive me's to do. We need to be saying those quickly and regularly. Have I offended you? Maybe on the way home, spouses, is there anything I've done in the last month that I need to apologize for? Be careful, well, you're gonna open up something, but it needs to be open. <laughs> anything today, anything that happened this morning that I'm not aware of that I need to apologize for? Let's start there. This one or this one, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's the third thing she does. Very last thing, and in my mind, maybe the most strategic thing that she does to diffuse this escalating dramatic situation. Here's what she does, verse 29. See if you can pick it out. It's a little bit wordy, but see if you can hone in on what she does. Verse 29, as she is finishing up talking to David, this is still Abigail talking to David, she says this, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living, the Lord God, your God. But the lives of your enemies will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord, look at this, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, Remember your servant, remember me. This is why the wife went to take care of stuff. Unbelievably smart, and David falls for it. Totally falls for it, look at what she does. She turns the problem. Before, David thought Nabal was the problem. 
all of a sudden she has identified a different problem. She said, David, oh wise king, as soon as God puts you on the throne where you will and deserve to be, you don't want this bloodshed on your hands. That doesn't look good for a king, that while you are out doing the right thing, you just totally pillaged an entire family and killed everybody that you saw over some food. That doesn't look good on social media, David. That's bad PR. Not a good way to start your reign as king. Notice what she did. Nabal's not, Nabal's not the problem anymore. She said, how you're responding is the problem, David. And what she does is she gets David and herself on the same side where they're working together. She says, so David, I'm gonna help you out. Let's see if we can figure out how to make sure that does not become a problem. And when you are king, remember me. That's not how enemies talk to each other. Fourth thing that she does, let's work this out. Let's work it out. She is able to brilliantly change the problem for David. It is no longer what started as the problem. It's now a, David, think of the ramifications if you go and kill everybody with you and your 400 men. How's that gonna work later on? She works with him. Let's work it out. So I'll own it. I see your point. I'm sorry, please forgive me. And let's work this out. Now let me give a disclaimer on the let's work this out. You can do all these things that Abigail did and peace may not be the result. We haven't gotten to David's response yet. So far it's just been all Abigail. So we don't know how David's gonna respond yet, but that's not our place. Remember, it's am I doing everything I can to pursue peace? Can, is there anything else I could be doing? And those four things, if you're doing those four, that's about everything that you can possibly do that's in your control. See, peace is not guaranteed, but it most certainly should be pursued. Peace is never guaranteed when this is what you're using. But if we're pursuing peace, then there's a good chance that it'll happen. Am I doing everything I possibly can to pursue peace? Here's David's response. After she does all those four things, David says this. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment. Underline that if you're taking notes. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed from this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, in other words, if it wasn't for you, Abigail, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would be alive today at daybreak. <laughs> if it wasn't for you, every male would be dead. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. Can you say that? If it wasn't for you, put in your name instead of Abigail's name, if it wasn't for you, oh man, imagine where this family would be. But because you chose to pursue peace instead of fuel drama, oh man, look at where you're at. If it wasn't for Abigail, this would have been a very different story. Because of Abigail's pursuit of peace, we see a very different story. So once again, am I doing everything I possibly can in my family to pursue peace? And I would tell you to go back to those four things. Some of those you're probably doing, some of those you're probably not doing, some of those you're aware of, some of those you may not have been aware of. I'll own it. It's my responsibility. Maybe I didn't cause it. Maybe it's not my fault, but I'm gonna own it. I see your point. 
I'm gonna move to see your perspective and then help you see my perspective. I'm gonna get really good at saying those five words. And I'm gonna say them often. And we're gonna work it out. We're gonna do our very best to work it out. And then we're gonna let the cards fall where they may. So here's what I wanna end with. Because that's difficult. And that's a whole lot of scripture. That's a whole lot of like, I've gotta do a whole lot of stuff. That's a lot, I get it. I told you it was gonna be difficult. But I wanna end with Ephesians chapter four. Paul says something that I think will put it in perspective, talk about seeing perspectives, that might help along the way. He says this, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, Paul's in prison when he's writing this, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, not suggest, not encourage, no, he's begging them as he is begging us today. I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for if you have been called by God. Let me help you understand what that means to live a life worthy of your calling because you have been called by God. We are all called by God to be his children, to be like him. We're not gonna be perfect at that, but to be like him as much as we possibly can. He says your calling in life is to be like Jesus in every possible way. And what did Jesus do for us? He pursues us, doesn't he? He pursued us all the way to the cross. The love, the grace, the forgiveness, and then repeating those, the love, the grace, and the forgiveness. When we didn't deserve it, when we can't do anything to earn it, he still pursues us. See, Jesus wanted to have a relationship with us so much where there was no peace, he wanted to reconcile us and bring peace to our relationship with him. And the only way for him to do that is by going to the cross, which he did for us, taking away all of our sins, so that the only result of that is that we are with him that's it but that was so important the relationship was so important to Jesus that he would do whatever it took to bring peace to our relationship with him now if Jesus has done that for us that's the calling he's talking about here that we've been called can we at least do some of that to the other people in our families in our lives because here's what it looks like Paul continues verse 2 here's what it looks like to live that calling out. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with, say it with me, with what? Peace. For there is one body and one spirit just as you have been called to one glorious hope in the future. The way that Jesus has recklessly pursued you, a way that doesn't make sense on paper, May we pursue the people in our families with that same kind of love and grace and forgiveness with the hope of peace. It's not guaranteed, but let's pursue it. Jesus, we come before you and we recognize the greatness of what you have already done, that we cannot earn it, that we, can't, we would never be able to deserve the love and grace and forgiveness that you have given us. But as we accept it and you freely give it, may we live that life with other people. May we reflect your love and grace and forgiveness to the people around us. That may we be more concerned with our pursuit of peace than being right. More concerned about our pursuit of peace than making a point. That we would, as you have already done, that we would live a sacrificial and selfless life to save a relationship. So Jesus, help us to have the strength to do what you have already done for us, to pursue peace 
as well as the people around us. Thank you for your reckless abandonment and your constant pursuit of us. In Jesus' name.